Today's episode is brought to you by Divine Social. Divine Social is a marketing agency that helps e-commerce stores who sell to makers, creators, crafters, artists, and DIY enthusiasts. They are behind some of the biggest brands in the creative industry, responsible for strategies to move your online traffic from prospects to buyers to raving fans. The team at Divine Social is offering a customized review of your shop to help you uncover what's keeping you from selling more. Go to divinesocial.com backslash CIA for more details. Thank you so much, Divine Social. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 210 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about quilting as an art practice with my guest, Heidi Parks. Heidi was born into this world, the proud recipient of a collaborative family quilt organized by her grandmother. Now, Heidi lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and works with the quilt world, the art world, and the maker's movement. Hand piecing and hand quilting imbue her work with the personal and contribute to her themes of diary, self-help, materiality, and abstraction. Heidi recently completed a year-long art servancy artist residency, is a two-time Mary Knoll Fellowship finalist and has received multiple awards from the Modern Quilt Guild. Heidi lectures and teaches with a passion for the beginner, and her unique improvisational style promotes the qualities of allowing, savoring, hinting, manifesting, and documenting. Whether on-site or via a self-hosted workshop on her website, Heidi incorporates hand yoga and body care as an essential component of learning to sew. Heidi Parks, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I love your work and I'm very excited to kind of learn how it came to be. So I think you might have grown up in the Chicago area. Is that correct? I know you live in Milwaukee now. That is totally true. Yes. And what was your household like when you were young? Were you sort of interested in doing creative things and in making by hand? I was. I was. My mother had an art table set up for us all the time in the kitchen. And that's something that I made art about when I was in college, that idea that anything made at the art table was art and was worthy of going in the magnetic frame that lived on the refrigerator. Um, Sometimes when I would babysit for other kids, I would be surprised when I would suggest let's make some art or do something. And it was this big hassle to go in the back closet and dig around and hunt for art supplies because I grew up in a space where it was very accessible. My grandmother, my mom's mom, was an artist and she organized the quilt that was made for me before I was born. And you know, my Aunt Sylvia and Aunt Rosie and Aunt Becky and all my mom's friends embroidered and quilted on it. So they were very into textiles, but my grandmother focused her studies later in life when she went to 
art school on pottery. So I spent a lot of summers and winters visiting my grandmother in Santa Fe, New Mexico, just getting uh, so absorbed in art and the culture there and developed a real passion for pottery as my first creative love. And my dad was a woodworker, so he always had his studio in the basement and was working on fixing things and, and doing household household woodworking type stuff. Um, my brother ultimately became very, very talented at photography. So he also was very creative growing up, more interested in music in his youth than, than the visual arts, but certainly a very welcoming home to creativity. And I know you had an art teacher, I think in elementary school, whose last name is also Parks, who yes. was somebody who was really almost like a mentor or just somebody to admire or maybe model yourself after in some way. So tell us about her. Yeah, Mary Parks writes me back to my email newsletter almost every month or every other month just to say she's proud of me and that she read the newsletter issue. Uh, when I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to study art education. And I was in a special program where they actually bused us three days a week to the local elementary school so that we could practice teaching art. So I got to hang out with my elementary school art teacher, Mary, uh, really frequently. And I got to observe her teaching the way that she teached. It was this amazing moment of uh, matching childhood memory with reality of getting to see what she was really doing as an adult uh, and, and observe that through what I had experienced years prior as, as a kiddo in elementary school. I have vivid memories of learning the color wheel with a margarine lid and we put little plastic circles on top of it in red and uh, you know in the primary colors and getting to see the way that they overlapped in the light. She would do a lot of special displays in the hallway and in the fifth grade when we were asked what we wanted to be when we grew up. My first thing that I wrote down was housewife. Like I knew my mom was a stay-at-home mom and I just loved, like I knew that I liked what she did. And then I was told that wasn't a choice. Ah, okay, sorry. But anyway, go ahead. Right. Like choosing wife as your career and maybe not. Yeah, I get it. But at the same time, that's a, that's that's a for real job. Um, it, so, oh, it definitely anyway. is. Yeah, <laughs> this, that's a little problematic, the whole situation. It was, it was anyway. totally problematic. Yeah. But um, my second choice was art teacher. And so I got to interview my fifth grade art, you know, I got to interview Mary and find out from her what it was like being a teacher. And it was kind of a new, new thing to imagine. Uh, I... I think over time, it was hard for me to imagine careers that I didn't have experience with. I had that same problem. I was like, I know about being a teacher because I've been in the classroom, but I didn't understand like, what do grownups do at work? That was always my big question. It was scary. I think you taught junior high for a while. I did. Yeah. And I... Yeah, I specifically said I could be an elementary school art teacher because like the older children were so big and frightening to me. Why would I, a fifth grader, aspire to teach <laughs> people who are older than me? 
Um, but yeah, it took a long time to think about doing other careers that I hadn't gotten to witness firsthand. Yeah, totally. I think that's such an important thing to think about, about exposing kids to all different ways that, especially someone who's interested in art, can become um, an artist or make a living. So, um, but that that is interesting. Okay, so um, what did you do for college? Did So did you continue this sort of interest in becoming an art teacher and um, and kind of what did you focus on when you were in college? I did. I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. It was one of four schools that I applied to. It was the the reach. So I did other, I only applied to schools in Illinois where I was living and I did the two state schools and I did a small liberal arts school. And then when we went on the tour at the Art Institute and saw the difference in the kind of art that the students were making there and the way that they talked, the way that they would just say artists' names so fast, like everyone knew who they were. And the just the facilities, it was mind-boggling to me. And my mother and grandmother had created such formative memories for me at the Art Institute of Chicago, being both a school and an art museum. Every winter we would go and we would see the exhibit and then we'd go for tea at the Drake Hotel. And it was this very fancy day that we would have every single winter and very special memory. And we would go to the art museum during the summer as well and see things. So it was a space that I knew. And then I had no idea that in the back of the exact same building that everyone goes to is where the students get to study and work and make things and do stuff. And that was pretty amazing to me. So I felt very lucky that I got to go to the Art Institute. It felt like just a series of miracles of deciding soon enough that I wanted to go and having the courage to take slides and develop them and, and figure out how to apply and what to write in my application. One of the things that inspired me to try to go there was that in high school, I worked as an assistant to a ceramic artist. Her name's Lori Polpeter Eskenazi, and she went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So over the summer, I would work like 40 or 50 hours a week making pottery and doing work for her. And when it was time for me to start thinking about college, she explained a little bit about what the difference was with art school and other kinds of school and why I might want to go there. I studied art education, so my degree is a BFAEE, a Bachelor of Fine Arts with emphasis in education. It required a few extra credits beyond the standard BFA there, but what was nice is then I was a true BFA student and also got certified in education. So That's I was great, like, yeah. Yeah, it was very empowering. It made everyone in the art education program feel like an equal to the other people in the school and not so separate. I didn't fully enroll in the art education program, I think, until either my sophomore or junior year. It wasn't something you had to declare as an incoming freshman. It was wonderful permission for me to take different kinds of classes. I had felt very focused on pottery. like That's what I knew about. I was a 3D maker and we had to take classes in a variety of things. So it made me have the courage to take 
the required class in painting and drawing and performance art. And I loved that they record, they required this class called public persona, private self. Oh my gosh. That's great. (laughs) It's just served me so well in my whole life. Little did we know what social media would do um, in the coming years, but it was an amazing class to get to think about performance In that way, I had also been a theater kid in high school and I loved acting in the school plays. And that I think was another thing that attracted me to teaching was that feeling of being on stage and entertaining and having a specific role in in being in the spotlight. Yeah, that's the great thing about teaching. It's almost like being in a play and that every person has a job. And so even if you're a shy person or not a big performer or don't feel comfortable with all the eyes on you, you know what you need to do. And so it makes it doable, you know, even for the most introverted person among us. So, yeah. 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 And, you know, my mother was so great at encouraging me in careers and things. So we did the the Myers-Briggs test uh, at home. And she kept her paper copy of it and wrote down what my score was back in the day. And we were reflecting uh, within the last few years that now two of my letters have changed. So now I'm the campaigner, a ENFP. But previously, I was an introvert, not an extrovert. And there was another one that was testing differently, too, that I can't remember offhand. But just that act of being a teacher and realizing it's my job to talk to every student in class. I cannot be shy because they're talented or pretty or cool or, you know, any right. other things. All of the social sort of rules mm-hmm. that exist and um, they have to be broken down. And that's such an important point. They have to be broken down. Yeah. And I just, I need to return to that class, public persona, private self, mm-hmm. because I honestly feel like we could resurrect that idea and teach a class on that now, as you said, with social media. Um, But there's a lot to be said for building a business and then being in the public eye and having to figure out where those boundaries are. There is. I remember when I decided I wanted to leave teaching. I had been a teacher for nine years and it wasn't going well for any for me anymore, especially because they had me driving between two different high schools and I was so spread thin. It was that feeling of being a frog in boiling water, but I used to love my job so much. And I was slowly realizing and waking up to the idea that I didn't love it anymore. And one of the big barriers initially to becoming an artist was, wow, everyone will know my name and I have to do all of the self-promotion. When I think about the PBS Art 21 artists that I know and appreciate, and when I go to an art museum or when I walk around, the number one thing is I have to know these people's names and hear their stories. And there's uh, it, that, that element of self-promotion and advertising was still very foreign to me when I was a teacher and it felt like the biggest gulp of, okay, I can, I can change careers and I can be an artist and be in that public realm promoting myself. I felt extremely lucky to have gone to the school of the art Institute when I decided to change careers because they have continuing support for alumni forever. They had every other Saturday classes that I got to go to 
because I was still living in Illinois and I moved back into the city of Chicago when I changed jobs. So as an alumni, every other Saturday, I got to take a free class on social media, on an artist statement, on an elevator pitch, on a resume, on a website, every subject. And then whenever I wanted to, I could create a one-hour free consultation with one of the experts at the school, the career advisors. And as soon as I had had one appointment, I could schedule another appointment. So I got the best advice on how to grow my career and update in a world that was very different from when I graduated in 2005. And the very first alumni class that I took was on social media. And it felt like that revisitation of public persona, private self. What do you want to share on social media? And at the time, my only Instagram followers were my Facebook friends. I think I had 250 people aware of what I was doing online. And they just talked about it in a way that was so accessible of think about who you follow. Why do you follow them? What inspires you? Why do you like being on social media? Which is the social media that feels best to you to interact with? And and breaking down that idea of what is a good social media post. Yes, actually, you can post a photo of a quilt more than one time. How could you get away with that? Doing the close up, doing the far away Um trying to show a little bit of the behind the scenes as well. I think that was a big deal for me was that your social media is not your website and the website has the clean, pretty, polished, edited photos, but the Instagram people want to see behind the scenes and they want that element of seeing in real time, how does it come together? What's what's being made or what does your studio look like? Is it perfect and clean or is it a little messy and how does that uh, shake out. And, and so then that's a new layer of public persona, private self. It's like my public private self, which is still different from my truly private private self. But those are edges that continue to get very blurry for me. I think that's a big part of my art is letting people into things that are often very private. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Tracy Ruder from Divine Social. Uh, Tracy Reuter and our company is Divine Social. And what is Divine Social? So we are a uh, advertising agency. We're a digital marketing agency that helps and focuses um, on brands and businesses that sell to makers, creators, crafters, artists, DIY enthusiasts, and we help them create successful digital acquisition strategies. Okay, so what does that even mean? So it's great that you specialize in this niche, so you're talking to makers, which is awesome, and you understand them, you're a maker yourself. Um, But what does all of that other part mean? So our specialty is when you're when you have your own storefront and you are trying to get people um, to go from never hearing about you to actually buying from you on your e-commerce storefront. We specialize in basically designing, if you will, um, the creative process to get people from never heard about you before to becoming raving fans. We've been serving the makerspace for over, gosh, five and a half years now. We're actually our team is been quietly behind some of the biggest brands in the space. And we have a tremendous amount of experience understanding the nuances of very tactile products. And we know a lot of times people want to touch and feel things, but we've really mastered how do you do it digitally? So if someone is 
if a company is wanting to really grow um, their direct-to-consumer, their, whether it's Shopify or whatever it is that they they own, so not, not necessarily an Etsy store or um, Amazon or something like that, but directly, um, that's what we've been doing for the last almost six years now in this particular space. That's fantastic. Such a good resource to know about. Um, and how can people find you and be able to reach out to you? Well, if you our, our website is divinesocial.com. Um, and you can go there. And then if you go to divinesocial.com forward slash CIA, uh, for a limited time, we have a, an opportunity for people who are already doing direct to consumer and want to get our eyes on their store to find out what's preventing you from getting more customers. Thank you so much, Divine Social. And now back to my conversation with Heidi. <music> Yeah. I mean, one of the things I always think about is, you know, most people are not able to be artists for whatever reason. And so they may be, you know, stuck at least pre-COVID in a cubicle somewhere, right? And so for them, seeing whatever it is that you want to share about your life as an artist is just exciting and interesting. And, you know, and, and so because it really feels like the dream life to so many people. So, um, so something that might seem very day-to-day and mundane to you, um, or messy or, or boring or whatever, um, <laughs> for a lot of people is really, um, and understandably so really, really interesting and just drool worthy, really. So it's interesting that there's a real difference there. But um, mm-hmm. I do want to return to your days when you were teaching, you were a teacher, an art teacher for nine years. And as you said, at the very end, they really messed up your schedule and had you driving around and and it was not sensible the way that things were start, were structured for and unsurprisingly in education. But uh, <laughs> but back in the beginning, at least mm-hmm. or in the middle, it was really good, and you did really love it. And I wondered if you could talk to us about what you loved about it and what are some of the memories you have from that time. Oh, it was the best being an art teacher. I was at a school with over 4,000 students, so I was one of six or seven art teachers, depending on the year. And it was amazing to have coworkers to brainstorm with and figure things out. Uh, I, inspired by Tim Hawkinson and Duho Sa, I would do a project every year where we made inflatable sculptures, and it was a collaborative project where we would make some kind of inflatable with painter's plastic and a fan and clear packaging tape. And all the kids got to work together to design something. We made a dinosaur, a gumball machine, an octopus that had the, from tentacle to tentacle, it was 20 feet wide. And it was on the football field for the homecoming celebration because the theme that year was underwater fantasy. Uh, we, I, I would walk out of the room after days like that with the kids working together, being creative, making, and just feel like I cannot believe I am being paid to do this work. It's amazing. I loved introducing students to contemporary art. It's something that I was not introduced to a lot when I was in high school. Um, the the idea that artists can look like any kind of person that you know, and that nothing can stop you if you are really meant to be an artist. Um, you know, certainly like just show, showing all those exciting parts of life and the different ways you can make art. I know um, 
Kai Guo Yang was really exciting to show because he made drawings with explosives and that was mind boggling for my students. And then I'd give them a sketchbook assignment to make, make a drawing that was an experiment. And they'd come in and they'd have drawn with Skittles that they dissolved in water to make watercolor paints, or they'd glue their pencil shavings to the page and make a collage with pencil shavings. Or it, it was just remarkable to get to see their personal definition of what art is expand. We did a lot of environmentally friendly projects. We would carve with something called a tagua nut, which is you're not an animal product and not a non-renewable resource. It comes from a tree, but it's not a tree nut. So it wasn't an allergy problem. We would do a lot of textiles in class as well. At the end of my college years, my favorite program to be in was the fiber art program. I studied, especially with Ann Wilson and Deanna Guerrero Messia and took a, a very unconventional quilting class where mostly I made quilts with paper not with fabric. And um, because of that experience, I did a lot of things with textiles with my students. And uh, my favorite one was drawing with thread. We would use paper instead of an embroidery hoop, and I'd print an image on the paper. And then students would sew through fabric and paper at the same time. It slowed them down. They were able to make a contour line drawing that took more than 20 minutes, which is about the uh, attention span of an average freshman in high school. So we would spend two, three weeks making these embroidered line drawings. And the level of detail that the kids could see was so extraordinary. Um, and that was a really good money-saving project too, because just a needle and thread <laughs> and, and a little bit of fabric was so much more affordable than some of the other things that we would do. Um, yeah, I, I truly loved being a teacher. Yeah, I, I think, you know, craft, whether, I mean, it's so hard to delineate between craft mm -hmm. and art, but um, embroidery, even cross-stitch, some of you know, knitting, some of the, um, the sort of craft, textile craft skills, mm -hmm. I feel like are totally belong in high school art class because a lot of those skills, once you learn them, they're the kinds of art that you might continue to make for the rest of your life. You may not become, you know, a, a painter, but mm -hmm. you may want to continue to cross stitch. And if you know the basics, you know, like it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, I, it's a more accessible maybe way of um, vi creating visual expression uh, in an ongoing way in, in a lot of people's lives. So I think that's great. Um, okay. So, um, so you were coming to the end of this period of, of teaching um, students, younger stu students in high school. Um, and so how did you figure out what to do next? Because as you said earlier, it was hard to envision a life, a professional life that was not something you'd seen. And so not that you hadn't seen artists, but how did you figure out, was it scary to, to sort of leap into something different? It was. I, at the time though, was seeing a really wonderful therapist. I should have started seeing a therapist long before. I think one of the you know, one aspect of my childhood is that I have a high ACE score, which is an adverse childhood experience. And my dad 
got sober when I was in junior high, but there were a lot of hard times before that. And um, I, I should have been getting help from that. And I think maybe for me, art was the substitute for that. I it was never offered and didn't have the courage to request seeing a therapist, but I could turn to an art practice. And that was very helpful for me. And then I had a romantic relationship that was lasted for 10 years and was very important to me. And when that fell apart uh, in 2012, I didn't know what I wanted to do going forward instead. Such an important part of the vision of my future was being the housewife that I wanted to be <laughs> as a kid. Uh, you know, we, we had picked out the names that we wanted to name our children. We had very vividly pictured our lives together and not having that to look forward to anymore was really devastating to me. So that's when I ultimately went to, to see a wonderful therapist where I was living. And she and I talked through a, a lot of things And one of the things that came up was that I'm a highly sensitive person connected to the book by Elaine Aaron. And in 2013, it wasn't as well known. I feel like a lot of people, it's our mission to get the word out about that book. But essentially having a more sensitive nervous system means that I feel my clothes more than other people do, or I feel the texture of my food more than other people do. Um, For me, it's a very touch related thing for both better and worse. I think that's why I excel at things like pottery that are so touch related and, and sewing. But as a child, it meant that I couldn't eat all the food on my plate because the texture was weird or as an adult, when I was bringing things up to my therapist, I was complaining to her that, in fact, I, my favorite brand of underwear had been discontinued 10 years prior, and I was mending my underwear, but it was disintegrating and there was nothing left to mend. And what was I going to do? And she kind of thought about it throughout the next week and then came to me and said, I think you should read The Highly Sensitive Person. And we just very slowly went through that book together and realized that a lot of highly sensitive people change careers midlife. And the realization that while I was very good at being a teacher, being a teacher wasn't necessarily very good for me. I was able to scan the room, to see everything that was happening, to remember the nuance of each child that I only knew for a semester. Uh, And then I'd go home and sometimes I would just feel like this buzzing in my head of all the things that the children had asked me that day and the things that were going on that I was trying to keep track of. And I was able to keep track of more than the average teacher in my head, which made me an awesome teacher. But I also was struggling because there wasn't that much space for other things for me because it was such a sensory overload to be a teacher. So that I think was one of the biggest things that kind of pushed my therapist to say, maybe, maybe there's a different way that you could express your love of teaching and art. And what would an ideal 
daily flow be for you? I am not a morning person. And I was realizing as well, after nine years of having to be at work at 7, 10 in the morning, I wasn't getting used to it the way that everyone had promised to. And so what if I got to wake up at a more natural time for me? What if I got to be quiet most days and then just be on and teach like four days a week? Uh, It was a real uh, process as well of looking up and trying to figure out what, what is a quilter? I made my first quilt in 2013 and I left my job in 2014, about eight months after I had made that first fabric hand quilted quilt. And so as I was doing all of that, thinking about the highly sensitive person, I was realizing that having the slow pace of working with, with fabric was really healing and helpful to me. I loved that it didn't need special ventilation, that it didn't need to be uh, cleaned up in the same way that other art materials did. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was a, it was a really interesting time of self inquiry and realizing that being a teacher wasn't good for me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I so relate to that. Um, And so, um, so you had made this quilt considering becoming a quilter, mm-hmm. transitioning to becoming an artist, but um, I'm not sure whether, I mean, it sounds like teaching was still in the plan. So that's an income stream, probably mm-hmm. selling finished pieces, right? But that's mm-hmm. a involved process and there's only so much production that can happen there. Mm-hmm. So did you have a plan for bringing in enough income to replace the, you know, the one nice thing I will say when you teach public school is the benefits are great. You know, my mm-hmm. family was all on my healthcare plan and um, it was really, you know, there's nice job security in that job mm-hmm. and there's nice benefits and um, it doesn't pay that much, but there is some, <laughs> there are some pieces <laughs> there, but did you have some plans around sort of figuring out revenue streams? Um, you know, it's, I not, no, not really. (laughs) I knew that I needed to leave. I knew that I was still suffering with depression and I just truly needed a change. So I, I was out on medical leave for depression for part of that first year and then transitioned to realizing, yes, I could, could change my job. And, uh, I, had been saving up money for my future with my romantic partner. He lived in Italy most of the time. It was very romantic, long distance affair. So I had been living with my mother till I was around 30 and I was paying her rent, but not as much as it would have cost otherwise. So I had paid off all of my student loans and I had created a nest egg for myself to be able to do whatever I wanted in the future. And that was a really special thing to be able to have that um, income and also really meant a lot to me to get to come home from work and see someone and not be alone. I think that was one of the things that helped me as a highly sensitive person being a teacher was that I got to come home and see my mom and talk through my day and be in a familiar setting. So with that, say I had about a year's income saved up. post taxes and everything, not before (laughs) those benefits cost a lot of money from your salary. But I thought in a year I could figure things out 
perhaps naively. So I thought I could do that. And that's what gave me the courage to leave. And then I realized that uh, it was kind of funny at the same time, my mother was, was very much had an entrepreneurial spirit as well. And so she had worked for someone for a long time. And then she made her own business as a food broker. And the same time I was changing careers, she was also moving to Florida and downsizing her career to do home watch with my stepdad and just not, not as involved of a career. And she would we, we would update each other on how our lives were going. And she'd say, oh, we already have 20 clients or we're already doing this or that. And I was like, I've made three new quilts. <laughs> I took a class about social media. Um, I have a few strangers following me. And you know, it was just my career was not moving as quickly as hers was. But I really did start to buy into this dream of what my life would be like. I did a lot of Googling, what is a quilter? Can people be quilters? I just previously had no idea, even though there's lots of PBS Craft in America videos at the time, at least about ceramic artists and people who are straddling that craft fine art realm. Uh, but they had not yet done the ones on Victoria Finley Wool for other people. And um, so I just kept researching, you have, how does one become a quilter? What does that look like? I was especially noticing some of the difference between Victoria Finley Wolf, who clearly taught a lot, and Maura Grace Ambrose, who was making quilts that were potentially for your home. And then Lou Haynes, who was making quilts that were for the wall and the art gallery. And I was just trying to make quilts and figure out what even does a Heidi Parks quilt look like? Because I didn't fully know yet. And I was able to live really affordably. I Cold turkey stopped spending money on a lot of other things that I used to spend money on. I was not eating out. I was not buying clothing. I was not traveling to Europe anymore. So that saved a lot of money. And I... What lived in Chicago for a year, and then I moved to Milwaukee, and that's where my mom grew up. So it was this nice feeling of returning home, even though I had never lived in Milwaukee. I rent a duplex from my aunt and was able to be near family again. And Milwaukee has such a, a better cost of living. So I didn't have to have a roommate to live in Milwaukee. I had more space. The things I wanted to go out and spend money on didn't cost as much. Um, and, and so that made that year's salary last longer. I definitely got more like two years out of it. But there was some some very lean times. There were times when I was on food stamps and when I was... Um, you know, my credit card bill was like $300 a month because that was all that I could spend. And I just hunkered down and kept doing the work and kept picturing what I wanted to create moving forward. And things started to shift for me a lot, I would say around 2017. So three years into my job change, I had enough of a presence on social media that people knew who I was. I had submitted quilts to QuiltCon in 2016, and I had gotten some awards, and I was able to teach at QuiltCon in 2017. 
I connected. Part of why I moved to Wisconsin was to be near the Wisconsin Museum of Quilts and Fiber Art. So I was volunteering there and teaching workshops there. And then they would advertise about me in their barn blast. And then other people would say, oh, who's this new quilter? We want to hire her too. So I was starting to really get some traction uh, about three years in, which uh, was was kind of just enough to keep faith that things would work out. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think, you know, it can look like an overnight success and like there's no been no struggle, but obviously it's never that way and there is struggle mm-hmm. there. And um and so you you said that you were um trying to figure out what a Heidi Parks quilt looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great question for all of us to ask. And it's not just around quilting, but it really is around anything that we're making. Like what is, you know, what is your expression look like of whatever you're working on? <laughs> so what, what, what did you figure out about that? What was the answer to that question? What is a Heidi Parks quilt? Number one, a Heidi Parks quilt is not a quilt that is made being nervous about how much time it takes and what it will cost another person to buy. I knew pretty early on that I just wanted to make the absolute best quilts that I possibly could. And whatever price they turned out to be is just what price they turned out to be. It didn't matter. Uh, I didn't want to take any shortcuts in creating them. I also realized that I love the feeling of collaboration and co-creation when I make things. My grandma had talked to me a lot about the kiln gods and the way that in a glaze firing, your pottery changes very dramatically. And, And so it was this idea that we were always collaborating, that the clay would dry and the glaze would be added. When I did a lot of painting, I loved letting things drip or sit, or I would paint with the canvas flat on the floor. And I would do things like a soak stain painting like Helen Frankenthaler. And that that element of wabi-sabi that I learned about in ceramics freshman year in college was so inspiring to me of collaborating with nature, of allowing, of making art that mirrors life the way that we all age over time and that things mark us and that that's okay. That's part of where the beauty is found. I, at the time on my phone, used my screensaver as a Margaret Kilgallen quote that says, my hand is imperfect and that's where the beauty is. And I felt like that that's been my screensaver, I think since 2011 on my cell phone. And that idea of the hand and handwork and handmade of of seeing the mark of my hand, like handwriting. Initially, that just showed up in the quilting. I didn't realize that I could hand piece a quilt. And or maybe that was that little bit of time being afraid of time. I needed to find out what a quilt by me looked like. So it couldn't take a whole year to make one quilt, for example, because that wouldn't wouldn't have served me at the time. But I went in 2015 to Seoul in South Korea to visit my favorite roommate from college, Yongok Kim. And she introduced me to Bojagis and the art of Jogakbo and using a whip stitch to make a patchwork. And 
I came home and it took me about nine months to have the courage to use some of those techniques in one of my quilts. But that was an incredible turning point for me that I could visibly hand piece a quilt and that if someone could see that it was hand pieced, like a layman, not a quilt expert, because I know all of us experts can look at it and tell if it's hand pieced. But if a normal, ordinary person could look at it and see that it was hand pieced, then they would understand more of the time that went into it and the value inherent in the quilt. So that excited me and has been something that I haven't gone back from. I, I lately I've been whipping out my sewing machine once in a while, maybe 25, 30% of the quilt will be made with a machine, but it's, um, those I would say are the overarching ideas and of what a quilt by me looks like. When you teach, mm-hmm. um, and you, I'm assuming teach some of these visible stitching techniques, mm-hmm. whether it's quilting or appliquing a piece down, um, or piecing uh, quilt, you know, patchwork together. And those stitches are visible. And of course, when that happens, they're not all perfect, because you're not a machine. So you can mm-hmm. see, you know, some of those stitches that go a little wonky and, and things like that. And, and for you, that is the best part, right? Like that, I mean, not that it's not mm. well made. It's just that it's visibly handmade. But I wondered whether you encounter resistance to that among quilters who for years have been taught to sew a perfect quarter inch seam on the sewing machine to match all those points. The quilt police are going to come get you if it's not <laughs> perfect. And, um, and so, you know, there is, there is a, a, a part of quilting that's really focused on perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a part of quilting that's really focused on speed. Um, and, you know, getting that nine patch whipped out as fast as possible so you can make another one sort of thing. So anyway, I wondered whether some of those values that you, um, infuse into a Heidi Parks quilt, um, meet resistance when you're teaching with other folks who maybe haven't encountered them or embraced them so much. That is a place in making a quilt that thrills me. That fine line between craftsmanship and, um, expression or messiness. And I, you know, I love, love this moment in the four hour PBS documentary on Andy Warhol, where he realizes he doesn't have to drip, (laughs) but that he can, uh, have things be a little off center with his silk screening or that the screen can get a little clogged that, that, that riding that edge. And so I, love feeling like for me, my quilts are impeccably well-crafted, but that I've created a different set of rules for myself around what that means. I get so many questions on Instagram around, are you going to put those knots? Like, what are you going to do with the knots? Because the knots are often on the right side, which everybody's been taught to bury the knot, hide (laughs) the knot. Mm-hmm. They have. But I saw a Rachel Carey George quilt at the Milwaukee Art Museum. She's one of the Jews Bend quilters and it's in the permanent collection. And so after seeing it a few times and always noticing that the knots were exposed, she didn't leave the tails exposed. She snipped the tail off, but the knot is visible on the top of the quilt. And very purposefully, you know, they'll all just line up in a row and be an aesthetic part of this work clothes quilt. And so it was her that gave me the courage to leave my knots exposed. 
And then I, I slowly realized, you know, maybe I could leave the tails on them too. And then I think around 2017, I realized maybe I don't even have to trim the tail. Maybe the tail could be that whole scraggly three inch at the end of, of, of a long length of thread that I was quilting or piecing with. And for me, they are so similar to the drips that I would have put on my pottery or my paintings previously. I find they make just a beautiful visual punctuation mark that they break up the space in a way that I think is really important to my work and to the quilts that I make. But there's there's a lot of explaining. I need to make one of those keyboard shortcuts so that it can just answer. <laughs> Yes, it's okay that these knots are exposed. Yeah, it's on yeah. purpose. Right now, <laughs> I have to retype it, or I'll be like, "Look at so, look at the comment that I pinned at the top of my Instagram post where I answered it thoughtfully once." Um, but you know, that to me is that similar feeling that I used to love when I was a high school art teacher that I could expand my students' idea of what art was or what something could be. Uh, expanding the idea of what a well-crafted quilt is and can be. I love that so much. And it's so freeing because I, I'm a person who I can't cut in a straight line and I don't aspire to, like, I I don't want to do that. And so it really scares me off from quilting because I'm like, (laughs) if all the pieces aren't exactly the same size to start with, well, it's never going to end up in a good spot. (laughs) So yeah, no, but that's, I think that's so freeing for so many people. And and yet to still really focus on the fine craftsmanship of it so that it's not as though it's a big sloppy mess. It's like very intentional and well-crafted. And I think that's so important. And so you just recently made a shift on your website where, mm-hmm. I mean, you you sort of come from an art background, a fine art background. And you also, you know, as you said, entered quilts in the modern quilt Guild, which maybe is considered crafted. As we said, the, that line <laughs> is so blurry, but you had structured your website as a fine artist. And mm-hmm. now it's structured, at least in your mind, as something that's more like a craft entrepreneur. And so mm-hmm. explain the differences for for you and what those two things might look like and, and why you made the shift. Yeah. You know, I think an extension to the answer of the last question is a good place to start. I, Because of my continued relationship with the Art Institute, I often go to Expo Craft Fair at Navy Pier every year. And it's it's not the kind of craft fair that you go outside and it's garden art craft fair. Like there's two kinds of craft fairs or oh, yeah. art fairs in the world. This is the very fancy one that you pay $25 just for the privilege of walking around at the art fair. And over the years, there have been more and more textiles that are at those shows. But those, to me, I look at them and I think, wow, I don't think I could make things that are that poorly crafted. It's the the opposite side of the spectrum where something is like just this raggedy little running whip stitch holding something together or, you know, looking at the work of Sanford Biggers where he has appliqued something sort of clumsily to a 200-year-old antique quilt and then spray painted on top of it and I do like his work. There's a place for that. It's very interesting. He's doing some new things, making quilt patterns out of sand on the floor of art museums. And like, I'm into it, but I don't long to make that kind of work. So I looking at the art world, I would go to these fancy art fairs and see things that were just, for me, the craftsmanship was over the line of what I wanted to do. And that 
I think is maybe another part of why I, I straddle things creatively. Quilters think I have maybe bad craftsmanship, but compared to the art world, my craftsmanship is too, too neat, too tidy, too fussy, too, um, you know, so, so again, I find myself in between those two worlds and my website was getting wedged between both worlds as well. I would, of course, walk Expo Chicago, find the people who were doing textiles that were similar to mine, look up their website and do that deep dive of who are they trying to show themselves to be? What does that kind of artist who's making that kind of money on their art, what is their online presence like? And usually it's a very stark white website. And then you click over to see the work or the gallery and it's only images of the work. And then they have maybe a little description, the dimensions, the year, and there are no prices anywhere at, at all. And then they link over to the gallery that represents them. And the galleries you know, at that level taking at least 50% of the money that's coming from the quilt sale. But you link over to the gallery and even then you don't really see the prices. They want you to come into the gallery and then you yeah, I would go like, say, Monique Maloche Gallery in Chicago. I would walk in there and it's like a war room in there sometimes. Like, nobody says hello. You can walk around. There's no prices on anything. But if you have the courage to go to the front desk and ask for the piece of paper that has the prices and the names of things, then finally you can see how many thousands of dollars everything is being charged for, for the work. So that's the art world model. And I was partly trying to conform to that by not having a shopping cart on my website because that was like a step too far. So I was having a gallery page and I included the prices and had a little note that you could email me to inquire about purchasing it. If it was committed to an exhibition or if they could, could buy it at that time. And then on the craft side, I was looking at people like Mara Grace Ambrose, who are clearly selling their quilts for thousands of dollars and doing really well at getting quilts in the homes of people who wanted to buy them. And I just like couldn't do the shopping cart for the longest time. And now this year, I, I finally decided, you know, I'm an autonomous person. You look at the artists who are represented by those galleries, a lot of them. Now, Sanford Biggers, for example, has an incredible Instagram following. So it's not true of everyone, but a lot of people, they aren't doing any social media. They're not doing any advertising or self-promotion. They're leaving that entirely in the hands of the gallery. And that's how the gallery is earning their well-earned 50%. And I was starting to realize that when galleries worked with me, they didn't even ask questions about if I wanted them to represent me because I think they knew it was inappropriate because I was able to sometimes sell my work myself. So I, I was finding myself in this weird space, even exhibiting with galleries or um, you know, co-curating shows for galleries where it ultimately was not going to make sense for me to be in a relationship where even if I sell a quilt all by myself, I still have to give them 50% of that sale. Um, you know, not just the things that the gallery sells all by themselves. And so I realized, okay, Heidi Parks, you are 
a very autonomous, independent, freedom-loving Sagittarius, and you might as well have a shopping cart on your, <laughs> on your website. So I, luckily my, my good friend, Kat, who I've been friends with since junior high, she's been working as an assistant to me three hours a week. And we just said by November, because November is such a special month for selling things. I'm going to fully transition to having a shopping cart on my website. If someone wants to buy a quilt for me, it will be a straightforward process that is easy. That makes sense. Uh, and it, and it was a phenomenal success. I, I sold a couple large quilts, but I had made a lot of small framed quilts. It's one of the most popular classes that I teach as well as how do you make something in a day rather than a 50, 200 hour quilt. And I had 26 stretched canvas style framed quilts on my website. And I sold 23 of the 26 on the shopping cart in a month. And I thought, um, the shopping cart business is great. I'm, gonna <laughs> <see>. <laughs> I'm so glad that that worked out. And I hope that, um, I hope that it inspires some listeners to sort of consider, um, making that shift and to hear your thought process as a way for them to sort of begin to think through, um, making that, that same change. So, so that's great. And, and can you share what platform it's built on? It's on Squarespace. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. And I also, um, yeah, go ahead. I also sell clat like workshops and quilt right. patterns and a, a variety of things. So I was already engaging in the shopping cart function anyways, by teaching on zoom, uh, So that was another reason why for me, it made sense. If I already have this function, I should be. Might as well make the most of it. Yeah. And I know you've done some collaborations. You were talking about the joy that you find in collaboration. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I get Zach Foster's email and Luke Haynes has also been a guest on this show as has Zach and you, you, the three of you have gotten together, it seems to do these soft bulk conversations. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you could say a few words about um, about those and, and what they've been like for you. Yeah. Zach is such a dear friend that I met on Instagram back in 2015. And the, the three of us have felt inspired to talk about the soft joys of quilting, the way that a quilt is not a painting and why that's awesome. The history of quilts. It, we initially thought me and Zach had made posts about the 3D nature of quilts and Luke for a long time has wanted to talk about quilts as sculptures. And so he reached out to the two of us and said, let's do a Zoom talk this Friday. And it was Monday or something. And we're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not one to waste time once he has a good idea. So we, we did it and we had so much fun that we thought we could enjoy doing this every month. So now it's almost a year of us doing our soft bulk talks on zoom and they're free and they, they're things that we're interested enough in talking about that we want to continue to do it for free. And we've been uploading them to my YouTube channel. I was developing, that was my new year's resolution for 2001 was to be a YouTuber. And I do a lot of hand yoga and hand care things for crafters. So that's the bulk of what I had initially on my YouTube channel, but it's been wonderful to be able to add those conversations about quilts on there so that we have a record of having done it and that people can share 
afterwards what we've talked about. But that's great. I will link to those in the show notes so people can go over and catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did want to make sure we got to your recommendations because you have very good recommendations. <laughs> so <laughs> your first one is around reducing. And um, you were talking a little bit about Warren Buffett's 525 rule, which I I read a biography of Warren Buffett, but I don't remember this. So tell us a little bit about how this has guided you. So I've only recently figured out how to credit him for that. I watched, I think, a YouTube channel or a a TED Talk that was referring to his rule, but not actually from Warren. And I could never refine. I went through my whole YouTube archives and I could not refine this lecture that I heard. But essentially, the idea is you think of 25 things that you love that you're interested in that would be awesome for your business. That would be so cool to do. And then you identify your five favorites of those 25. And then you look at the other 20 and you realize those are the enemy to your success. If you invest in all 25, you will get nowhere. If you try to forget, at least for a while, about those other 20 things, table them and just focus on five, that that is where you can find success. And that for me has been really helpful. When I look back at my career, it's the moments where I said, I'm not doing that anymore that are the real places where I grew because you can be busy doing small stuff and then there's not enough space for the big things to come along. So for me, when I decided I wasn't going to teach three-hour workshops anymore, I was only going to do full-day classes or retreats, suddenly then I was making a lot more money and doing a lot better because I wasn't busy with that. Uh, I used to teach six yoga classes a week um, throughout three evenings a week. And I really enjoyed that work. But when I said no to it a year ago during the pandemic, because it wasn't fun anymore to teach yoga in a mask. Uh, Suddenly I had an extra seven and a half hours of work time that I could put towards my job as a quilter. And I was a lot more successful this year. So saying no to those things is helpful. And that's one of the things that me and Zach talk about a fair amount. He um, maybe a couple months ago sent me this beautiful quote from Bruce Lee that says, It's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessential. And that to me has been very, very helpful. I've also been thinking about it in three dimensions more lately instead of just time. I read a wonderful book called Goodbye Things from Fumio Sasaki. And he's a minimalist and only owns 200 things. And that is not my future by any stretch. But he has helped me think about the way that objects require time and care. And if I don't have to mentally remember as many objects, if I don't have to clean or organize or sort through or refold as many things, that that will also be a really great time-saving thing for me. That's brilliant. Love it. Um, Memoir was your second recommendation. Um, And so... Tell us a little bit about sort of reading and memoir and why it's meaningful to you. Yeah, you know, I have been two years in a row now a finalist for the Mary Knoll Fellowship, which in Milwaukee is a really exciting art fellowship. It's 
$40,000 is the reward. So uh, it's very exciting to be a finalist. I would love to win it one day, but the interview process is almost like an existential crisis for me of having to tell these judges in 15 minute conversation, everything about my art and what I'm into and do, but I have learned a lot of a lot about myself and my work through that process as well. And so this most recent time, as I was synthesizing what I do and looking at it through that very critical art lens, I realized that my reading habits connect an awful lot to my art making. And that if I step back, the biggest thing that I'm interested in is memoir and diary and kind of seeing my art as seeing my life as art. I read mostly memoirs, even the goodbye things is a tidying up book that is very much structured like a memoir. And uh, you know that, that self-help theme that runs through my quilts, whether it's about trying to heal my menstrual cycle or trying to document the first 100 days of a pandemic or documenting a, a vacation that I went on, that idea of storytelling is very important to me. And for, for almost my whole career has been the beginning of my artist statement where I mentioned the quilt that my grandmother organized for me that has such a big element of storytelling in it. So I've been digging in a lot more lately on reminding myself why memoirs are so valuable. It can be hard especially in a pandemic and just in, in the world where there are so many causes that I care about, so many things that are going wrong to feel like, oh, I need to, need to make art that's about something really important and meaningful. And, you know, like my, my menstrual cycle series is the one that the Noel judges have latched onto and loved the most. And it's the one that that is the most connected to social justice. It sucks that I have to pay out of pocket and see a naturopath and do all these things that aren't covered by health insurance to be healthier. And that my doctors are looking at me and saying, unless you want to go on hormonal birth control, there's nothing we can do for you. Um, But I don't want all of my art to be about that type of thing. It feels heavy to make. And sometimes I think it's enough and valuable and special to be making art that's just about me And that little old me is enough to be the subject of great art that is worthy of making. And so digging into why memoirs matter and the the incredible richness of all the different subjects of memoirs and different kinds of memoirs. One of my favorite memoirs that I've ever read is Sally Mann's book, Sally Mann's book, Hold Still. Um, So that one, if anyone is excited about digging into memoir as well, that would be a great place to start. I'm going to read that one. I love memoir. That's mainly what I read as well, um, that and biography. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a great recommendation. And then your last one, and you have a YouTube video, which I watched about this method, (laughs) but um, you make cold brew coffee. It's very simple. It's just, oh, you're drinking some now. I'm drinking it now. (laughs) Um, And it's really just like putting grounds into water and then waiting Um, and then filtering and that's it. And it's, it's pretty cool. And I'm sure it tastes really good. Oh, with the whole milk. It's so creamy and delightful. 
And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm kind of collaborating with time, the coffee grounds do their thing. And it's so fun after a lifetime of being a highly sensitive person and being too sensitive to drink caffeine. um, So the only flavor of coffee I could ever choose was the decaf flavor. There's something about the way cold brew processes that doesn't extract as much of the caffeine. So I get to now read all the delicious labels and get the coffee from all all the different ends of the earth um, because coffee is just such an exotic, exciting thing to go in the store and choose which bag will I try today. Um, And for me, it's really been about savoring that idea of savoring something in the morning of starting my day with something that tastes really delicious that I put the effort into making the cold brew maybe once every other week. And, and then it is so simple to pour in the morning. I don't have to use any electricity to turn on the kettle. I get to just immediately enjoy and savor this delicious beverage of mine. And, um, it's, it's nice to start the day that way. I think for a long time, my art was about longing or wanting things and to instead make a shift into savoring. Um, feels different from a gratitude practice, like being grateful for something is different from being like, right now I just am savoring this start to the morning or this particular sensorily delicious experience. And that's part of why I became an artist as well as I love art. I love beauty. I'm a very hedonistic person ultimately. And, and, and that cold brew coffee just gets the day started right for me in the savoring department. Well, Heidi, it's been so much fun talking with you. Thank you for being on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. Thank you for having me, Abby. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Divine Social. Divine Social is a marketing agency that helps e-commerce stores who sell to makers, creators, crafters, artists, and DIY enthusiasts. They are behind some of the biggest brands in the creative industry, responsible for strategies to move your online traffic from prospects to buyers to raving fans. The team at Divine Social is offering a customized review of your shop to help you uncover what's keeping you from selling more. Go to divinesocial.com backslash CIA for more details. Thank you so much, Divine Social. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.